Will the wicked never stumble and abound in every place? We will all be humble when we see your faith. And the demons we've been fighting, those without and those within, will be underneath our feet to never rise again. All our sins will be behind us through the blood of Christ erased, and we'll taste your kindness when we see your be wearied now that we long for the day that we hunger and we thirst for the day God when you will wipe away every tear from our eye Father when you will, will once and for all God redeem all that has been broken cursed by the fall God thank you that you have already begun that work through your Son, Jesus Christ. God, as we continue in worship, God, as we read from your Word and we see the work of Christ in instituting a better and more lasting covenant through His blood, God, point our eyes to Him. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Church family, if you can, would you remain standing and would you take your copy of God's Word and 
join me in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Hebrews chapter 8. As we continue reading together through the book of Hebrews. This morning as we come to chapter 8, I want to help frame it this way for us so that we can rightly understand what's happening in this chapter. When you think about your relationship to God, when we think about what it means to be in a relationship with God, I want us to think about that in terms of covenant. That we are in a relationship with God based on covenant promises that God has initiated, that He has brought to pass through, primarily as we'll see, His Son Jesus Christ. God is not committed to you in a wishy-washy kind of way. He is committed to you, committed to you by eternal covenant. And in Hebrews chapter 8, what we're finding together is that through Christ's blood, a better covenant has come which perfectly fulfills and completes what the initial covenant that God initiated with His people what that was only pointing us to. So the fullness of it is found in Christ. I think you'll see how this works as we read together in Hebrews chapter 8. Let's pray that God would take this eternal truth and write this upon our hearts. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, or see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Church, would you be seated? And as you do so, let's go to the Lord again in prayer together. God, we thank you that we are bound to you, Father, not simply on our own wish and whim. Father, we thank you this morning that we are bound to you and that you are bound to us, God, not in wishy-washy, however you feel about it kind of ways. Father, we are bound to you by your covenant grace and mercy to us. You are our God. We are your people. You are our shepherd. We are the sheep of your pasture. Father, we are bound to you. Not because, oh God, we have kept the terms of your covenant, for we have not. We have broken covenant, God. We have sinned against your law and covenant demands. But God, we are bound to you by covenant grace and mercy. 
uh, that loves us and comes to us in our sin. That covers our sin through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. So God, what that means for us is that the hope for which we long and the hope uh, that we read of in Scripture, God, it's coming. It is a present, even now, reality for us. Again, God, not because we will be sinless and keep ourselves in your grace, but Father, because even in our sin, through the blood of your Son, God, you hold us and you keep us firm and fast until the end. God, would you encourage the saints this week? Encourage the saints. Build them up. Give them the hope of the gospel. That reaches down into the sadness. God, that reaches to the grief. God, that reaches into their sin and temptations. I thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are committed and faithful to us. Again, God, all praise, honor, and glory. Your great name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Church family, sing this chorus with me. Amen, amen, from beginning to end, Christ the story is the glory, hallelujah, amen, Christ the story is the glory from beginning to end of scripture. Christ's story. Let's sing that chorus one more time. And amen, amen, from beginning to end, Christ the story is the glory, hallelujah, amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue to worship. Christ the true and better Adam, Son of God and Son of Man, who when tempted in the garden never sin, and he who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again, and dying he reversed the curse, and rising crushed the serpent's head. The true and better Isaac, humble son of sacrifice, who would climb the fearful mountain there to offer up his life, laid with faith upon the altar, Father's
may be seated. As we do each Sunday morning, let's look at a verse of Scripture and spend a few minutes uh, considering its words and committing it to memory. And so we will read out loud 2 Corinthians from chapter 7, verse 10. And so if you would, it'll be on the screen. There we go. And we'll read it out loud and then say a few words and pray. All right. Good to go? Let's do it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 2 Corinthians 7.10. All right. So godly grief, godly sorrow over sin produces repentance, produces salvation, produces life without regret. True repentance does not regret and desire to return to sin. It doesn't hold a hope somewhere back in the recesses of your mind that one day I can return back to that thing I desire and enjoy. True repentance forsakes sin completely and totally, recognizing the separation and the death it produces before God. Do not call repentance a sorrow, a grief over sin and destruction and consequence while holding a desire and enjoyment of sin back behind your, your display of repentance. Please recognize the destruction and death of sin, what it produces, what it will culminate to. Recognize the holiness and goodness of God that He offers this word to us that we would repent, that we would see clearly who He is and what sin is, that we would turn from it fully and completely, that we would find a Savior, a God of love and grace and compassion and mercy ready to forgive and ready to restore in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. God, forgive me. I can't stand here and talk about repentance and talk about genuine sorrow over sin and think that there's not been times and many, many times where my repentance has been false, where I've withheld some desire, some hope of returning to the sin that I'm repenting of. And God, I ask your forgiveness there and thank you. Thank you that your mercy and grace is sufficient over that. Knowing that your promises are certain and your goodness and grace are sure. And Lord, I, I thank you that, that you, Lord, you have revealed and led me through those things. And I ask that God, Lord, that you would continue to bring me to that repentant place. That I would genuinely and truly be sorrowful over my sin that would not then lead me into temptation once again. And so, Father, would you, Lord, God, would you help us this morning? God, may we recognize your goodness and your grace that, God, we would get such a true and uncloudy glimpse of you that, God, sin and temptation would hold no authority and no trapping and desire for us any longer. May we see you as you truly are, high and lifted up, as we just sung the true and better Adam, the true and better Isaac, the true and better Moses, God. That, Lord, we would not approach life like Saul. We would not approach like Achan, thinking that we can have a little bit here and there. We can, we can reserve the sheep that were committed by you to destruction and then sanctify them and say, oh, it's okay, we'll give them and devote them to God albeit sin. God, would you help us and lead us, Father, that we, Lord, would fully repent of our sin and of our selfishness and turn our lives to you and find you the good, kind shepherd that you are ready to lead and direct us, God, recognizing that we are only in a place of repentance because you have been there bringing us to it, to recognize your patience and your kindness that would lead us to this genuine repentance. And so, Father, help us this morning. God, may we see you. And we, may we see ourselves. And that you would lead us, God, before your throne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Church family, would you take God's word and join me in Matthew's gospel this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, is where we'll study together this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. I love you, I love seeing you, I love being a part of life here with you, so thankful for, for you and all that the Lord is doing among us. We seek to become better Christ followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 4 moves us, or Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4 moves us in that direction as we study together this morning. You recall that we are now in these beginning verses of the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry there in that northern region of Galilee as Uh, crowds of people have begun to follow after him. They come and they sit down. Jesus begins to teach them in this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not saying something new here. He is reminding them actually of something very old and bringing the fullness of that what is very old, bringing that fullness to light as he teaches them in the Sermon on the Mount. Predominantly, what Jesus is driving at in this sermon over and over and over, uh, across a, a varied subject matter, the one central point that Jesus continues to drive toward is that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, and if you desire to be a part of this kingdom, this is then what your life is going to look like. As inhabitants of the kingdom... Just because we are under God's grace through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, we do not get a license to live however we deem best. God gives us in His Word, particularly here, in the Sermon on the Mount, instruction about what our lives should be. The sermon begins most, uh, most familiarly here with the Beatitudes. These nine Beatitudes, or descriptions of the one who is a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a disciple, then these nine things, kind of right off the bat in this sermon, these nine things are going to be consistently, not always perfectly, but consistently true about you and the life that you live. All of these Beatitudes, beginning with that word, Blessed, blessed is, and then it goes on from there. We, were, we, we learned last week that the word blessed, it is not something that is based on your circumstances. You are not living the blessed life because there's money in the account, everything's going well, nobody's sick, you got the promotion at work, you got the new vehicle. That's not what living the blessed life is. That, that, that's, it has nothing to do with external circumstances, but being blessed or the person who is blessed, that is based not on circumstances, but it is a deep-rooted contentment in who you are in Christ Jesus. It is a contentment and, and, and honestly a peace in your soul because of what has happened to you and for you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, even if everything around you fails... If everything is lost, if you don't get the promotion, if things are not going well, if you are in Christ, you are still, in fact, blessed by God. So last week, we saw together, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 4, for us today, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The rise of modern technology, and right along with that, the rise of things like social media, those apps on your phone, that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram app, that has given us Instant access to to news, to information, to events. 
And not only is it giving us access to news and information and events, it's also, and this is the way it's designed, it is giving us the ability as we receive sort of that instant alert on your phone telling you of what happened, it also then gives you the ability to instantly react to that news, the information, or the event. Like no other era in human history We have the ability to both instantly know, to have knowledge about what is going on around us, and like no other time in human history, we have the ability to pull out that device from our pockets and immediately get our thumbs working and immediately react to that information. As a result of that, we have become, by and large, a culture that quickly reacts and responds to absolutely everything. One of the lies about social media is that you have to have an opinion about everything, and then you've got to get that opinion out there for all of your followers to see, hear, or read. And I would remind you that one of the best days of your life is going to be when you come to the realization that you don't have to have an opinion about everything, and you don't have to tell the waiting and watching world what you think about that thing. That'll be the most freeing day of your life. You know how this whole situation works. I've gotten involved in this. You've gotten involved in this. The situation goes something like this. An event happens. A politician makes a statement. A global pandemic transpires. What happens next? What happens is that people open up their phones, right? They open up the Facebook. They open up the Twitter app. And they instantly do what? They instantly react. One person makes a comment, offers a post. Maybe they do it out of anger. Maybe they do it out of fear. Maybe they do it out of joy. But then how does it work? Someone on the other side of the equation does what? Uh Uh-uh. And they begin to comment. And about five seconds later, like World War III has broken out on your social media feed, right? Because everybody's doing what? Everybody is reacting. Everybody is responding. Everybody is emoting. Very few people are actually thinking. We're just reacting, responding. No one slows down. Emotions begin to run hot. Five minutes later, everybody's yelling at one another. And not really yelling at one another because we're not even in the same room together. We're just yelling at each other over the internet. And I would also remind us, that it's accomplishing absolutely nothing. Everyone is emoting, overreacting, exaggerating every minute detail just to get their point across, right? So we've become an emotional, reactive people. Even, I'm, I'm afraid, even within the context of the local church. Think about the many ways that we have seen the church be emotionally divided on issues over the last, we'll just say 15 years or so. And I say 15 years or so because it was about that time that social media, Facebook, Twitter, other things were really beginning to find their footing. It was about 15 years ago that President Obama was in the midst of his candidacy, soon to be presidency. And for the the first time, I really began to see a pretty ugly underbelly in the life of the church as it was exposed and expressed on social media. Because some of you will recall that while President Obama was moving through his candidacy, soon to become president, it was said about him by many people within the church, plastered all over social media, and then all the division takes place. It was said about candidate Obama that he was, in fact, the Antichrist. Now, maybe you disagreed with some of his policies and things that he said or did, but not quite sure that he was the anti-Christ. As these 15 years or so have transpired, in many ways we've seen the church continue to be emotionally invested and expressing high emotion and reaction to various issues. Political candidates have come and gone over that time. Every election cycle, it brings about high emotion. Race issues enter back into the conversation in this country, and Christians 
social media, emoting, reacting, dividing. Things like a global pandemic and all the responses to it have revealed that maybe the church isn't always as united as we think we are. Everything has become a massive thing which then demands high emotion and reaction. And here's my fear. So here's the point that I'm driving at. For all the emotion, my fear is that we have lost the ability as the people of God to actually mourn over the things that actually matter. We are are so keyed up. Everything is a massive thing that demands a highly emotive response. And what are we doing? We're wearing ourselves out due to being emotionally keyed up about everything. But then when the things that come along that really do matter, we have no capacity to mourn or to grieve. As Scripture, in fact, calls us to do this morning. Church, to be sure, there are issues all around us that cause us to feel and experience high emotion. I get it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But we need to remember that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as inhabitants of His kingdom, our greatest and most robust response should be reserved for the sin that surrounds us and the sin that is within us. We think about responding and maybe even emotional responses. Church, I want to draw us back in. I want us to kind of put all the stuff of the world aside for a moment and remind us that our greatest response should be reserved for the sin from without and the sin within. As we consider this second beatitude this morning, as we consider the mourning and the comforts that we see in verse 4, I want us to settle our hearts on this one kind of central theme and reality. That those who follow Christ, they mourn over their sin, yet they are comforted by God. Those who are followers of Christ, they mourn over their sin, yet are comforted by God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's think about that phrase with me for a minute there in verse 4. Those who mourn. The word mourn, I think you know what that means. It it means to grieve. It means to lament. It is a deep anguish of the soul. In the Greek there in verse 4, the word mourn is a present participle. And what that means is that it's not a one-time moment. What Jesus has in mind here in verse 4 is not a one-time moment, but a continual, ongoing mourning and grief. A continual, ongoing, present reality in the lives of His followers. It's not, it's not, what is being pictured here is not a quick, one-time, emotional outburst. It's not just even merely saying that you are mourning or that you are grieved. This kind of mourning in verse 4, the mourning that marks the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, this kind of mourning goes deeper than just words. It goes to the very core of our being in such a way that it will produce a desired and lasting response in us. It's not just merely a quick emotion. It's not merely firing off and, uh, you know, a, a text about how grieved we are. It is a deep issue of the soul that produces a desired and lasting response in us. So then I think the question has to be asked and answered this morning what is this morning in verse 4? What is that in response to? What is the reason for this mourning? I want you to consider the context and to think back what we saw together last week in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
We saw together last week in verse 3 that these in verse 3 are the ones who know their complete inability to come and be made right with God on their own. They know that they cannot come and be reconciled to God by their own merit, but only through the merit of His Son, Jesus Christ. These are, in verse 3, the beggar poor who understand their absolute destitute condition. They are the ones who understand that their sin has broken their relationship with God. That they have offended God's holiness. That they have broken God's holy law. That they rest under the right and just curse and condemnation for breaking God's law. And they lean wholly, totally, completely, only upon the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so then as you follow that out, down into verse 4, and we're seeking to answer the question, what is this mourning about? What is this in response to? Those who mourn, in verse 4, are those who mourn over what? Over their sin. They mourn over sin in general. They mourn over what sin has done to the world. They mourn the fact that all creation and every single person in all creation is tainted and twisted by the fall. But they also mourn over their own sins specifically. They mourn over their sin and what it has done to their relationship with God. They mourn over the reality, the gospel reality, that because of their sin, Christ had to send and crush His Son on the cross. They mourn over the reality that every instance of sin in their lives is a violation of God's holiness and it is an attempt to rob Him of His glory. They mourn over the reality that sin negatively affects their relationship with others on a horizontal level, if you will, but primarily that it negatively affects their relationship with God on a vertical level, if you will. Let's think about this a little more for just a moment. Think about mourning over sin in just a general kind of way, in a general sense. Grieving that sin exists in the world. That it has broken everything around us. That it negatively affects us corporately as the people of God. Do we mourn? Are we moved to grief? Of what sin does to people? Of how it twists and taints and perverts God's perfect creative image and design in people? Do we mourn over the warfare that sin causes among people? Do we mourn over what sin does? In the family? Do we mourn over what sin does in the beautiful bride and body of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or, or, or have we just become so dull to it? Maybe we take a fatalistic view that just says, oh, that, that's just the way it is. God will make it all right one day, but we're just going to have to kind of suck it up and deal with it until then. Oh, well. Beloved, the reality is that we should mourn generally over sin. That it exists in a fallen world. I think we see some instances of this in Scripture. Ezra chapter 9 and verse 6. Ezra said this, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to You, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Ezra considers the corporate sin that exists among the people of God and he cries out, I'm ashamed and embarrassed, oh God. Think about Jesus. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that, on that, uh, that final Sunday, that triumphal entry of His. We read in Luke 19 that when He approached, He saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. 
Jesus kind of crests that hill and before him is the glorious, majestic city of Jerusalem. But for all of its glory and its swollen people on that day, Jesus weeps. Why? Because he knows their sinful rejection. He knows that they have stoned the prophets and those sent to her. And he grieves over what sin has done to them. How it has blinded their eyes and they live in these terrible consequences of sin. Paul in first, or not first, in Philippians, there's only one, Philippians 3.18, Paul says this about the sin of false teachers. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul looks across the landscape of the church and what he finds is wolves in sheep's clothing that have infiltrated the lives of these churches, these people that he loves so dearly. And it brings Paul to tears. Even weeping. Sometimes we know that Paul is having to address people that once stood by him and, and walked with him and he then has to say about them through tears that they are enemies over the, the cross of Christ. Church, mourning over our sin at least begins with a general mourning grief that sin exists in the world. But it's not just that. It it gets more specific than that. It's grieving in a specific sense as well. Not just that it exists in the world, but that it exists in me. I think it's very easy, by the way, To grieve and lament the sin that exists in the world, but it's a lot harder when I have to look in my own soul and deal not with the sin without, but to deal with the sin within. John Flavel, the Puritan, said this, Brethren, it is easier to disclaim or to declaim against the thousand sins of others. It's easier to do that than to mortify one sin in ourselves it's easier to hop on facebook twitter and emote and react about the sin of others or even the sin in the world around us it's a lot easier to do that than it is to kill to mortify one single sin in our own lives but blessed are those who mourn over their sin we see instances of this kind of specific grief throughout scripture psalm 119 verse 136 says my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law the psalmist is grieving here not that just sin exists but that it exists in him and that he is not able to keep god's law turn to romans chapter 7 familiar passage from paul romans chapter 7 Look down to verse 18. Paul's wrestling in this text with the the two natures, if you will, that exist in him. That redeemed, but yet still tainted by sin nature. Watch the wrestling and the way Paul talks about himself and his own sin. Romans 7 verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself... With my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. Wretched man that I am. Nobody posts that on Facebook, by the way. 
Nobody's tweeting that. But beloved, the call is to grieve, to mourn over my sin. Not just your sin, not just the sin of the world, but my sin. Mourning over sin is a grief regarding the problem in me. What sin has done. What it continues to do in me. It's a mourning over how sin has separated me from God. How sin mars and perverts the image of God in me. How sin, even as a Christian, how it negatively affects my communion with God and my fellowship with others. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. What does this look like? What does mourning over sin, what does that look like practically in my life? It may, it may bring tears. Mourning over sin, the, the realization that you have sinned, of what your sin has done, it, it may bring tears. It may bring high emotion sometimes. If the sin is severe, if its consequences are, are many and vast and broad, it may bring high emotion upon the mourning of our sin. It, it may produce feelings of sadness within us. We would even say to some degree that's, that's good. That we would feel at least a moment, a pang of sadness or guilt. However, more than anything, mourning over our sin is what Thomas Watson said when he said this, and this is so helpful to me, church. That gospel mourning, it sends the soul to God. Gospel mourning, mourning over sin. It sends the soul to God. It doesn't send me inward. It doesn't send me outside of myself through whatever avenues the world affords to me. It does what? Gospel mourning. A mourning over my sin. It sends me to God. So maybe then we can say it this way, that mourning over sin is a general disposition in me of hatred for my sin that moves me to confession and repentance of that sin. More than tears, more than emotional response, mourning over my sin primarily looks like confession and repentance of that sin that moves me away from sin and toward Christ. Let's consider this in Scripture and illustrate this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writing a very difficult letter on top of a previous very difficult letter that he's written to them. 1 Corinthians 5. Start in verse 1. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, speaking to the church. There's immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind does not even exist among the Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife. Verse 2, here's the point. You have become arrogant. Have not mourned instead. So that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. There is a sin among you, Corinthian church. It's an unrepentant, flagrant, flaunting of sin. And you have become arrogant and not mourned instead. You wink, wink at this sin and it doesn't grieve you. Adultery is happening among you. And you become arrogant about that. You're not grieved by that. And here's how Paul knows that they're not grieved. At the end of verse 2, you haven't removed this person from your midst. 
you haven't taken sin seriously. You haven't done the work of gospel reconciliation. You haven't done the work of dealing with sin seriously. None of you, Paul says, are really repentant about this because you have not done the things in keeping with repentance. Turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I just call your attention again to the verse that we're memorizing this month. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Starting in verse 9, the background is that the Corinthians have repented. They've repented of their sin. So Paul says about that in verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made just sorrowful, not that there were just some tears, but I rejoice that you were made sorrowful to the point of what, church? To the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God does what? It produces repentance every single time. The gospel and a gospel sorrow produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Why does the sorrow of the world produce death? Because the sorrow of the world is, man, I'm really sorry I got caught. I'm really sorry that I've got to bear the consequences of my sin now. Doesn't actually care about the sin. Doesn't actually care about what sin has done to their relationship with God or others, it's only concerned with, I got caught. And now I'm a little embarrassed. And now i got to deal with these consequences. That's not sorrow. That's the sorrow of the world and it leads to death. And it leads to death because it is void of repentance that leads to life. How do we mourn over our sin? If it brings tears, fine. But it must bring repentance or it's not yet mourning over one's sin. One last Scripture. The book of James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 8-10. through 10. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves. The presence of the Lord, He will exalt you probably didn't anticipate that you were going to come to church and hear be miserable today. Mourn. Let your laughter be turned into sorrow, mourning, and gloom. What's the call here? The call here is to deal rightly with our sin, right? It's to humble ourselves before a holy God. It is to view sin as God views it. It is to confess unto God, this is what sin is. A violation of your holiness, your holy standard. This is what sin does. It wrecks, ruins, and destroys. And God, I want to turn from it. I want my soul to go to God. Because that is true repentance. John Stott wrote this, I fear that we evangelical Christians, by making much of grace, sometimes thereby make light of sin. There's not enough sorrow among us. Here's what he means. We don't sin more, Romans 6, we don't sin more so that grace may abound. That's not how this works. If you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you hate your sin. And we don't live under some weird, faulty perversion of the truth 
that if we sin more, we get more grace. If we live on in unrepentant sin, we, under, we only evidence that we don't really understand grace. For if we understood grace, we would remember what sin has cost the Lord Jesus Christ and how grace has actually come to us. But look, look at the end of verse 4. It's not all doom and gloom. Blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Here's what's true about disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They mourn over their sin and then they receive what? They receive the comfort from God. The word comfort there, it's the Greek word parakaleo. means to draw alongside for the purpose of help and encouragement. It's same root word that's used to describe the work of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who in us is a help. He is a comfort. He lifts up our weary head. And when we rightly mourn and repent over our sin, the Holy Spirit does what? He comforts us so that we are not unnecessarily burdened by our sin. The Holy Spirit comforts us so that we do not remain in those feelings of guilt or condemnation. The Holy Spirit comforts us so that we are not tempted to believe the lie that says if you really were a Christian, you wouldn't sin like that. God comfort comforts those. God's comfort comes to those who take sin seriously, who Hate what it does. How it twists and perverts. Church, see the flow in verse 4. If you do not mourn, there is no comfort. If you do not repent, there will be no comfort. Yes. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 is true. God is the God of all comforts. Those texts in Isaiah that speak of God's comfort to His people, those things are true. Psalm 126 and verse 5, God's desire for us is that we sow in tears, yet reap in joyful shouting. The church, we must deal rightly with our sin. And then, we are comforted presently and for all eternity by the comfort of God. So, church, those who follow Christ, they mourn over their sin, yet they are comforted by God. What is your disposition towards sin what is your disposition towards sin do you hate it or is it not really that big of a deal do you repent of it or do you say to yourself i'm under grace it doesn't matter do you have a general distaste for sin and all that it negatively accomplishes in the world or do you sit in it and let it pervade your life and the life of those in your family do you have a view of, oh well, there's nothing we can do about it? Glorious promise that we will be comforted. Church, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not play fast and loose with sin. We don't stick our toes in the water of sin just to see how it feels. We mourn it, we repent of it, and in so doing, receive a present and future comfort from God. How should you respond to this beatitude this morning? Are you in the place where you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? You've never turned from sin, but you need to do that now, today, before it is too late. You need to turn to Christ and fall upon Him, Him alone, as your Savior. Maybe that's how you need to respond today. Christian, is there some area of sin in your life where you've just kind of let it go? It's just become kind of part of who you are no longer produces a grief or a sorrow in you, how should you respond if that be the case? Do we need to stand better guard so that we don't let just rampant sin run into the lives of our families and our entertainment and whatever it is that we let into our homes? How do we need to respond? Let's do that. Let's do it knowing that as we mourn, we will be comforted. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank You 
that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But God, we do not want to be flippant about our sin. We don't want to be calloused. God, we want to rightly deal with it. And, and, and primarily what that means is that we want to repent of it. So God, I pray for those who are desiring to respond accordingly this morning, God, that You would be their help. That You would give them grace. God, that You would continually purify Your people. And God, that we would live lives dealing with our sin rightly. Until the day when You call us home or the Lord returns. And we will sin no more. God, we look forward in that blessed, comforting hope. God, until that day, help us to fight God, our sin so that it does not destroy us. We need Your help, O oh God, to cause Your Spirit to do the work that I can't do, that we can't do on our own. God, move us toward holiness in our lives. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's stand together.